to the cloud. Uh, I think we're we're going. Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon. Good evening, depending on where you are. I figure this way I'll cover every base. I'd like to thank my good friend Jeff for uh, helping get get this thing going um, and for allowing uh, this to actually happen. Um, and as he said, there's loads of uh, various recordings up on the OALAIG.org website, including uh, the person who records our birthday party, who usually wants a, like a two-year exclusivity, made the last birthday party open. Uh, and so the entire birthday party from last year is up there. So uh, that's good. Now, um, one thing I'm going to do just to just to break it up so you don't have to keep seeing just one talking head there is uh, I've got a couple slides and I'm going to try and do this, but it means me going back and forth between two computers. So if I look a little goofy once in a while, uh, understand it's because I'm trying to do two things at once. And if I don't do it correctly, uh, that'll be why. So let me start by talking to one of my favorite sayings in all of, uh, OA, uh, this one here. It's not about the food unless it's about the food. Then it's all about the food until it's not about the food. And if you're wondering just, you know, what the heck does that mean? Uh, oh, hang on, I should have done that in here. Um, it means, well, there's a phrase in AA that I hear way more than I hear here. And it's, it, it's simple. It's first things first. So let's say I'm an emergency doctor and you come in with a compound fracture of your leg, you know, with the bone sticking out and all. Uh, and you tell me you did this dirt biking. So now at that point, I can take a little time. I can talk to you about dirt bike safety. Uh, I can talk to you about protective clothing. But I'm guessing exactly at that moment, what you want me to do is fix your leg. And so we're going to be talking about a lot of things today that are like that. Because getting abstinent after a relapse is like setting the bone and putting it in the cast. But from there, working the steps is healing the bone. And, and remember another one of my favorite sayings? A broken bone is stronger at the place where it heals. So let your last relapse make your abstinence stronger. And let your last relapse be your last relapse. And um, to me, that's an important thing to remember. Um, so I'm going to go back to uh, just talking now so you get to see my, my marvelous face. <laughs> so here's what we're going to cover today. Well, as with any 12-step workshop, you know, the key is I'm going to talk about the steps. But in my opinion, that is the key to long-term recovery. In the beginning and coming out of the relapse, the first three steps are very important. And I'll also cover some of the OA tools. Now, the tools aren't a substitute for the steps, but they can be a good adjunct, especially when trying to get out of the food. You know, I'll also be talking at least a little bit about the big book, because that's where the steps come from. And it would be pretty hard to not talk about the big book there. And there are many good sections addressing things about coming out of relapse that are in the big book you should be considering. But I'll also talk about the real life issues about getting out of the food and the disease of compulsive eating. You know, these real world thoughts were, were things I wish I had heard 
when I was trying to get out of my relapse cycle, uh, you know, I would be climbing the walls trying to stay out of the food and I'd get suggestions like, oh, go read page such and such in the big book or do some writing on this or that step. Again, not bad thoughts at all, but to belabor the metaphor yet again, I was really needed somebody to help me set the leg in the cast. So as Jeff mentioned, a little housekeeping note will be helpful to have a pad and pen ready to do a couple of little exercises. And and because um, I'm going to ask you to do two writing exercises, one really quick and one um, that will maybe take a little bit more time and we may even uh, end up using in the, in the chat feature. And also the reason I have a pen and paper there is also you may think of things that I'm saying um, that you want to ask more about. And when I'm done with my talk, I'm going to take as many questions as I can, and, and hopefully we'll go from there. So here's the first little exercise, and I just don't, I want you to spend like 30 seconds on this, right? I think most people know uh, about the uh, red light, yellow light, green light food. Um, and again, <laughs> just to show you that. For those who don't know, the green light foods are all those foods you can eat and you know you don't have any problem with, you have no trouble stopping. Uh, ironically, I always say most of the green light foods actually are green, you know, as in vegetables and things like that. And then we all know our red light foods, the ones we just know are kryptonite, that once we eat them, we're off to the races and we really can't stop. And then we have the yellow light foods, okay? And those are the ones that are in between. So what I'd like you to do right now is just take 30 seconds and on your pad, write as many of those yellow lights foods as you can think of, okay? So I mean, we can do that and we'll take it from there. And then, um, oh, of course, I, this <laughs> doesn't work. So I was going to, I was going to do a thing about the uh, Jeopardy. Da, 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 da. Second verse. All right. As we say in... Uh, we we always used to say in... Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, John, but a lot of people are on the chat asking you to redefine the yellow light food. So if you wouldn't mind uh, for our home audience. Okay, sure. Appreciate that. Back up, Jeff. Um, essentially, the red light foods are the ones you know you got to stay away from. The green light foods are the ones you know you can eat without any problems. You may like them, but you're not going to go off to the races. It's the yellow light foods, the ones you sort of, you sort of feel sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, certain situations you can, some you can't. So just write those down. I'm going to keep going, but uh, just have those handy. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to save that list for right now, and I'm going to come back to it a little later. So we don't have time for my whole story, so I'll just give you a couple of quick and dirty stats. Uh, so you know I earned my, my uh, seat in the rooms. I should have actually got a couple of my pictures up there. I forgot. Um, I've been 38 years in OA. I have, as of last March, I have 25 years of abstinence. And I've been maintaining somewhere between 105, 110, uh, you know, pound weight loss. Maybe a little closer to 100 right now because of COVID. <laughs> and... For those of you who can do basic math, you'll notice that those two numbers, 38 years in program and 25 years of absence, means 
there's probably a good chance there was some relapsing going on there. And, and of course there was. And the thing is, is that this was happening, this relapse was happening to a person who was in program for 14 years. I was going to three to five meetings a week and still I couldn't get out of the food. Uh, could you, uh, whoever's mo monitoring the um, uh, mic, find out who's uh, unmuted. Aggie M, I think, is unmuted. Um, but I couldn't get out of the food and I'm going to three. John, you're muted. Okay, I guess we had to do a mute all, so I'm back. It was this, this time of my relapse cycle, and I like to call it a relapse cycle, because for most of us in program who are in dealing with a relapse, it isn't like one off and we can't get it back. It's we get a week on, we get a week off, we get a month on, we get a month off, and it's this constant back and forth. And for me, it was like one of the most miserable times. And so finally, after years of struggle, I was graced with the current gift of abstinence I have. Uh, you know, and I've been absent ever since. You want to hear my whole story? There's numerous copies of it up on the LA Intergroup website, but I don't want to take your time today. You know, I, hopefully you believe I earned my seat. But again, that's the important thing to hear is that I was relapsing 14 years into the program, going to three to five meetings a week. I was relapsing, even though I could quote you large chunks of the big book verbatim, and it didn't help. So ever since I've been given this gift of abstinence again, I've been spending a lot of time looking backwards at my relapse cycle so I could understand it and hopefully help people not go through what I did, or at least not have to go through it as long as I did. So let's talk about abstinence and recovery. You know, to me, abstinence isn't just about getting thin. It's about getting well, and well in all aspects, physical, spiritual, emotional. And when I talk about spiritual recovery, I'm not talking necessarily about a God or a higher power, if you have trouble with that. It's, it's about our spirit. Our spirit needs to recover. And by that, I mean, I think the goal is for us to be happy and content and at peace with ourselves without that, that crutch of food. You know, my two favorite pages in the big book are on 132 and 133, where it talks about, you know, we, we absolutely believe that we're supposed to be happy, joyous, and free. We are not a glum lot. We absolutely insist upon enjoying life. And my favorite of those two pages, avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery. And I was the country's number one manufacturer of that. Um, so in the big book, the word relapse is only actually mentioned five times. And only really two of them have to do with relapse as we, we know it you know, today. And this is the one, the most important one of all. Um, our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every, every abnormal drinker. And obviously, you change drink to food and drinking to eating and abnormal drinker to compulsive eater. And my relapse had to do with that. It also had to do with, with hello? hello, okay. Uh, it had to do with um, my failing to, you know, to perfect and enlarge my spiritual life. In other words, using and working the steps. Let me stop this again. 
you know, so I'm talking about the steps. I'm talking about the big, big book. But however, this is all just an academic exercise. If you're in the midst of the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind, understanding the entire big book and 12 and 12 is almost useless if you're still eating. You know, that great line knowledge of our disease alone will not help us. And that's an important thing to realize. I didn't realize it in the beginning. So let me just take a second to talk about something I don't feel any people talk about very much because I think they think it's a negative thing, but I, I beg to differ. I think it's something I really wish somebody told me when I was in the middle of my relapse. And that's this. Relapse from food addiction is hard. <laughs> you know, it really is. I mean, and there's a number of reasons. I personally believe it was harder than my getting sober. One, we have to eat, you know, and I know people say, well, alcoholics still have to drink water, but you know, I have been in places, I used to be a stand-up comic, and at the end of the show, I'd have people standing with a drink under my nose telling me a long, bad joke. Didn't have any urge, but I have been in not-fit spiritual condition and finished my meal and wanted to go to the refrigerator and wipe it out because it was there. And other reasons, it's harder. No matter what's your addiction, even, you know, you know, even if you're a real bad alcoholic or drug addict, you know, it doesn't start at least until your teens. But food is with us right from birth. You know, it, it has to do with, you know, um, it has to do with mother and love and reward and good memories. It's also socially acceptable. On TV, we have two entire networks devoted to the thing we have problems with, you know? And it doesn't matter you know, how much time you have, uh, you know, in program. Hang on a minute. I've got to turn my phone off. <laughs> I'm just getting too many calls. Uh, people think that, okay, you're running a wor workshop. I can call you in the middle of it. Um, but it's also socially acceptable to do that. And, and I don't understand because you watch on, on TV, they have commercials that are absolutely food porn, you know, slow motion chocolate drizzling on some, you know what you don't see at the end of those commercials, please eat responsibly, right? The other thing is that makes it harder is there's thousands of easier, softer ways out there. Just stand at a supermarket checkout line and read of this, eat all you want and still lose weight. Eat, you know, do this, do that. Well, I tried, I swear to God, if there's a diet out there, I tried it. And I think a lot of people who have Long time in OA had that, but it doesn't work, you know. Here's the important thing to understand. Abstinence in OA is not easy, and it's not soft. But at the end of the day, it is the easier, softer way. And there's other reasons. Recovery can sometimes come with its own set of problems. You know, you don't get that in AA. Oh, I stopped drinking, and boy, I started having all these extra problems that not drinking causes. But, you know, if you are young, and let's say female, and you've been heavy, and you lose weight, and you get attractive, sometimes, you know, that causes extra problems. And then obviously, the other most obvious thing about food is the soothing effects it had for us. You know, like it says in the big book, people drink essentially because they like the effect. People eat essentially because they like the effect. But the most important thing that makes this disease harder, I think, than any el anything else is the manner in which it delivers the pain. You know, alcohol, drug addiction, whatever, it's acute pain that slams you face down into the sidewalk and pulls up your bloody face and says, get it, get it, <laughs> you know. But the trouble with food is it's a slow, dull, chronic pain. 
And if you are a smart person and you, you can think really well, you keep moving the goalposts. You keep saying, Nancy J, could you turn up your mic? Um, uh, that you keep moving the goalposts. You'll say, okay, well, I'll never get to 200 pounds. And then you get to 200. Well, I'll never get to 210. Well, I'll never get to 215. And that's what happens. We begin to accept more and more things that in the past were unacceptable. And, and it's just the thing that's hard about that pain is it's, it's enough to make us know we should do something about it, but often not enough pain to make us willing to go to any lengths like it talks about. And the perfect analogy, metaphor, whatever you want to call it for me is the frog story. You know, you may have heard before, scientists can take a live frog and bring it toward a pan of boiling water. And as, the, as you get close to the boiling water, the frog's going to start thrashing because it knows it doesn't want to be in boiling water. But you can take that same frog and put it in a pan of room temperature water and then turn the heat on slowly, slowly, slowly. And that frog will die in a pan of boiling water that it could have jumped out at any time. And that, to me, is compulsive eating at its, at its uh, worst. And so I think it's important, again, to say to people that if you you're, can't get abstinent to begin with or you're coming out of relapse, that this is hard, you know, and it's okay. But it isn't going to be hard forever, I swear. Those of us who have long-term abstinence, if it was as hard for us now as it was in our first weeks or months, maybe, we wouldn't do it. We're not masochists, but it, it isn't. It does get easier. But the thing that you got to realize is to get to the place where it's easy, you got to go through the place it's hard first. And so there were two main things in looking back at my relapse that I realized I hadn't really dealt with correctly. One was the concept of powerlessness, and two was the concept of how my disease worked in my life. So what I would do is I would go to meetings and I'd get up at meetings and say, yes, I'm powerless. And then I'd go eat and I'd say, I'm powerless. And I'd go eat again, you know, powerless, eat, powerless, eat. Well, think about that. What was I, was I really thinking I was powerless? You know, what was going through my mind when I was going out? Was I saying, oh, the heck with OA, it doesn't work. I'm leaving now. What I was saying below the surface, and again, I was totally not aware of this until I looked backwards. What I was saying is, when I'm done, I will come back and I will get abstinent again. And why did I think that? Because I had the empirical proof that I could. Because I had done it before. I had done it over and over and over. Anybody who has had abstinence and lost it and gotten back, even though you want to tell yourself you have, you have, you're powerless, there's a part of you that's not going to believe it because you were abstinent and you lost it and you got it back again. So in that terms, I wasn't powerless over the food. I was powerful over the food. But what I didn't understand is I was powerful over the food in the small picture. You know, I knew if I went out, I could come back and I could eventually grind that train to a halt again. I might have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I might have to get a new sponsor. I might have to do all kinds of writing. But eventually I could get that food down and stop. The trouble is that the moment I stopped, the clock was ticking on when I was going out again because I wasn't really abstinent. I called it abstinence. In looking back, I was on a years-long in and out, in and out, in and out cycle, and I had deluded myself into believing that those end times were actually abstinence. 
I know now that what wasn't really abstinence. But it's hard because I couldn't equate powerlessness as the same with my other disease, you know, because I didn't feel that, you know. And the way I describe it sometimes is the difference between um, the difference between that and real abstinence is the same as running. Go run 500 yards and sit down until you're you're okay. Then run another 500 yards and sit down until you're okay. Then run another 500 yards, sit down until you're okay, and continue doing that for 26.2 miles. Now run a marathon. That's the difference. It isn't about a number on a, on a calendar. It's not about standing up and, and talking about it at meetings and feel like a big shot. It's about I got through everything life had to, to throw at me for the last 25 years. And that's the important thing. And the thing I had to realize is I had to reframe how I thought about powerlessness. I think you have to pull the camera back. I used to be a film major. Pull the camera back to the establishing shot. Take in the big picture and realize, yeah, I had times I was in, but I have never admitted I was powerless because if I did, things would change. You know, when I first came in back in the Stone Age, we used to always hear we don't eat no matter what, which is a real hardcore way of saying it. But I heard a much nicer way to say it. A person said once, if you're a compulsive eater and you've made food an option, it'll always be the only option. It'll always be the path of least resistance, right? Think of it. If you've got to go through some kind of emotional pain or, or upset or everything, or you can go eat something that A, you like the type, taste of, and B, knows made made it easier for you to get through the day, who wouldn't make that choice? Who wouldn't choose relief over emotional pain? But that's the key. And that to me, that is the main key of our program is that food can no longer be an option. Because as my, my good friend Terrell here says, if it's not an option, it's not a problem. And you know, I had to reframe how I thought of it. I had to think about how I ate, you know, that I needed to, to, to think of it differently. I think of picking up food is like, it's the same as eating, uh, eating food is the same as, as having a bullet and a gun. And I guarantee you, I don't know how many people are on here right now, but I bet none of you have ever taken a gun, put a loaded one, put it to your head. And as you're pulling the trigger, say, I'll start again Monday, because you understand that's not going to work, right? You're not going to believe in that. And that's the important thing. That is the compulsive eating right there. Because I've, I've had a lot of friends. Anybody who's been around for a long time can name person after person who's no longer here. And when I say no longer here, I don't mean not in the rooms. I mean no longer on this side of the grass. They are dead. I had two sponsees, Jim B, Dan C, who are no longer here. And one of my favorite people in program was a guy named Murray. Murray that was a wonderful example. Bag in the car. Hi, somebody live, please uh, run. I thought it was live at me. Debbie Mason. I it. Debbie oh, Mason. so sorry. That's okay. <laughs> John, you're muted. You're muted, John. John. Okay, hopefully that did it. I keep getting the host is muted you. Hang on. 
Can you guys hear me now? Yeah, John, we can hear you. Okay. If you guys could, instead of hitting mute all, just go down the participant list, and if you see somebody who's, uh, who is, is showing a microphone not on, um, just, just sort of do them Jay. one at a time. Nancy J, please turn off your mute yourself. Nancy J. You know, she may not be anywhere. Hang on a minute. Let's see. I'll get her, John. I'll get her. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Sheila. It's my friend, Sheila. So I'm talking about Murray. Murray was one of my favorite friends in program. Murray came in, was a wonderful power example, lost 300 pounds plus. Murray was a genius. And I don't mean that lightly. Um, Murray worked at a place where, let's just put it this way. There are things on the moon that Murray helped put there. He worked at an aerospace company. He was an absolute genius. And the thing is, and I'm not saying this to be humorous, Murray is the smartest guy in the graveyard now. And the thing is, if I could go back with Murray and I could say to him when he was picking up the first compulsive bite of that relapse, Murray, for God's sakes, don't do this because you're going to do this and then you're going to go out and you're going to be gone for a week or two and then you're going to come back and you're going to have another couple of weeks. You're going to go out again. Then you're going to come back and you're going to be, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to stay abstinent. And if I was able to say that and to end it with, and Murray, at the end of this, you're going to be dead. That first compulsive bite means a lot more. And the thing I know is Murray is really smart. I'm really smart to have been on Jeopardy, done all this stuff. Guess what? I'm never going to be smarter than my disease. And if that can happen to Murray, it can happen to me. And so the first part of this that I just didn't understand had to do with my concept of powerlessness. The second part of it had to do with how the disease worked in my life. You know, here's an example. Again, 14 years in, I moved out here to LA. I am going to meetings. I am secretary of a meeting called Artists in Abstinence. Uh, I'm I'm getting speakers for that. I am a sponsor. By the way, I shouldn't have been either of those things because I wasn't abstinent. I had a sponsor. I was intergroup delegate. And yet I would leave that meeting and go to the donut shop on the way home. And I said, walking out of that donut shop, I remember once saying, what the hell am I doing? It's not like I'm sentenced to OA. If I don't want to be here, I don't have to be here. But that's the thing. I couldn't understand it. And the way I framed it that may help people is I think of my voice as the, the world's best salesman. Okay? Everybody think of the world's best salesman. Okay? You know, he's suave, he's sophisticated, he's likable, he likes his product, which in this case is the food. He knows you like the product, which in this case is the food. And he's with you 24-7. Now, here's the other thing about that salesman. That salesman can read your mind. Think about how hard it would be to say no to a car salesman if he could read your mind. You'd go in and, oh, no, I'll think, and he'll have the answer. You'd, You'd walk out with a car, wouldn't you? You would. And to me, that's part of this disease. It is the concept of that best salesman trying constantly to make the sale of getting us to go compulsively eat. Here's the most evil thing about that salesman. If that salesman does make the sale, if he does get me to go compulsively overeat, he puts his arm around me and says, oh, and by the way, this was your idea. No, it wasn't. 
It wasn't my idea. I wouldn't be going to all those meetings if I really wanted to compulsively overeat. I wouldn't be a sponsor. I wouldn't have a sponsor. I wouldn't certainly wouldn't have been a delegate to those intergroup meetings. I would have just eaten. But in that moment of impulse, it convinces me that this was my idea. But it wasn't my idea. It was the addiction of the food. Nobody watching this today. You've got better things to do on a Saturday than be here and watching this. But again, a lot of us who are watching this are in, in relapse and realize you've been trying hard and it hasn't worked. But first, I have to understand the difference between me and I have to know where I stop and the disease starts and vice versa. You know, we all have no trouble. If we have a friend, you get to a certain age, you've had somebody who's had cancer. You don't sit there and say to that person, God, how stupid are you to get cancer, right? Or if they get cancer and it goes into remission and God forbid it comes back, you don't sit there and go, what, didn't you learn the first time? Because we all get that that's something they don't want, right? We know that, but here's an important thing. They are growing it in their body. You know, it isn't being injected from somewhere else. They are growing it in their body. But we all have no trouble understanding that it's something they don't want because they can they can show a picture of it on an x-ray and say here's the tumor here's the person and we all accept that but we had a relapse again we are a piece of garbage because we ate again we have a disease and the trouble with a cognitive disease like compulsive eating or any kind of addiction is that we um we can't could somebody check the uh, sound on that? Thank you. Indicating she's um, talking, but um, showing yeah. that she's muted online. So happy. Okay, but if you go through the if you go through the participants thing, you can find them. Oh, and yeah. then, no. Okay. It's showing that Kathy. Kathy, please mute yourself. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> this this is why I needed two people to keep right right heard over that because it happens in our meetings all the time. By the way, I hope everybody's wearing a mask while you're watching this and you're staying six feet away from the computer because that's very important. Anyway, back to this. We have a disease and we can understand cancer and we can understand the people with cancer don't have it, but we take on the guilt of having this disease. And why? Because it's a cognitive disease, you know, but we can also understand and, and, and accept that people have epilepsy, people have schizophrenia, people have various mental diseases and they can you, people understand that, but when it comes to addiction, we take it on ourselves. Well, you know, science has proven. I'm, I, I've changed careers in the last few years. I'm a drug and alcohol counselor now. And we show our patients various, various articles and videos showing how science has now been able to actually image addiction just the way it did before with, with cancer. And you put somebody in a thing called a PET scan, and you can show you can show those people's brains lighting up in a very specific way if they're an addict and they're using their substance. Here's the really interesting part: you can take that person, put them in that in that PET scan who isn't using their substance, and just show them a picture of their substance, and their brain will light up the same way. The point is, is we have an addiction. We're we're almost a setup. We're almost a setup because you get into this loop of it helps us and then it convinces us we need to do it and it, we do it over and over. And you see, that's the problem is our disease in our brain, it talks in the same voice as the rest of the thoughts in our brain, brains, right? I mean, it doesn't 
you know, actually we don't talk in voices, but it, it sounds the same. It would be so easy if our voice had a, our addiction had a different voice, right? If, if our addiction sounded, let's say, like Darth Vader and like, John, go eat, punk, you know, oh, what? Oh, that's my disease. I can't pay attention to that. But that's the trouble. It is sounding the same as the rest of the thoughts in my head. So I can't pay attention to how it sounds. I have to pay attention to what it is saying. And what it's saying is un- invariably going to be opposite of what I know I want here when I go to meetings. And we'll talk a little more about that in a little while. But I used, again, my disease would grasp my brain and use perfectly good program slogans, you know, to, to tell me why I should keep eating. I would, I would go to me. I was the master of program BS. I would come in and say, well, I can't get absent, but I'm going to work on the spiritual for a while. You know, or, oh, you know, I'm going to work the steps and then I will get abs. And I, I, you know, I can only speak for me. And I know some people disagree with this. I've read that book backwards and forwards and nowhere in there did it say, hey, read this book, work the steps, and then you will want to get sober. You know, now, have I ever heard of some people in my 38 years who have done it that way? Yes, I have. A very small amount of people. And the only trouble with that is that for every one of those people, there's hundreds who think they can get that same lottery ticket and somehow do it without putting the food down, you know? And I would do all these other things. One of my favorite ones for a while was, well, I'm praying for the willingness. I'm praying for the willingness. You know, I was at a convention once and I heard, heard the speaker, one of the keynote speakers, she said, when it comes to addiction, willingness is highly overrated, <laughs> you know, because what really works is pain. You can't will willingness, but you can get willingness through pain. And, you know, I didn't get that. I kept hoping for something different. You see, what happened is when I came into OA, I had what I now know is the typical OA experience. You know, first of all, I didn't do my story, but one of the things I always say in my story is I tried every diet. And unlike when I first came in, I said I tried every diet and they didn't work. I realized the fact was I tried every diet and they all worked. They all worked once because I'm a great little student. You tell me what the syllabus I'm supposed to follow and I'm going to do it. The thing is, it would only work once because I have the brain of an addict. But you know what? I came into OA. They had, it was right after Gray Sheet went away, but they had the dignity of choice. And I found my food plan and I followed that religiously and I lost my weight in a a fraction of the time. And I um, got down to a normal weight. And then, of course, like anything given to you easily, you throw it away because you figure you can get it back again. And that was the beginning of some of my hardest problems. But in looking back, I realized I had a quintessential OA experience. I hear it all the time. I got abstinent. I had it. I lost it. And now I can't get it back. And for me, I can only speak for me. What it was is that first abstinence was just another one of those diets that worked once. And I could really work it half-assed. And it still worked because, again, I'm the good little student. But then the next time, I needed to do the real work. And that you know, I was a lazy person and I didn't want to do that, you know, but that's the important thing is that all of those excuses I made, they, they were, they were all given to me by my disease because my disease had one job to do every day when it got up, when I was in that relapse. And the job it had to do was to get me to kick the can down the road one more day on putting the food down because it knew if you could get me to put it down today, it could, it could probably get me to do it again tomorrow. 
because I wanted that gift abstinence. You know, over in the other addictive programs, you'll hear from, from drug addicts, the drug addicts are always chasing that first high. You know, the first high is as good as it gets, and they spend the rest of their time until they come into a program or die trying to get that first high back. Well, that's what I was doing. I was trying to get that first abstinence back. But you know what? I can only say for me, you only get one, and then you have to do the work. And what I was trying to do was different. I was trying to negotiate, you know, and that you heard the phrase surrender all the time in programs, surrender, surrender, surrender. Well, the opposite of surrender is negotiation. And that's what I was trying to do. And I have a good friend, Ira, who always says, you can't negotiate with this disease. It'll always win. And I mean, how stupid was this? I'm relapsing left and right, and I'm trying to have recovery on my terms. I'm negotiating. I'm like that Black Knight from the Monty Python movie who's lost both his arms and legs, but he still wants to negotiate. And so what I had to come to realize is I had to get mad at my disease a little because it robbed me of so many things in my life by trying to sell me that snake oil that food will cure my problems and make me feel better. You know, it might make me feel better for a short time, but then the self-loathing returns and it's even worse. And is that really a price to pay for an incredibly short elevation of mood? And for me, it isn't. And it brings up the $64,000 question. Who do you want making the decisions in your life? You or that salesman? And I say that because I would do crazy things. Like I would go to a restaurant that didn't even have good food, but they had good bread. And I was addicted to that. I mean, that's, it, it, it's so dumb. And I, what helped me was to start seeing the disease as something outside of me, that it's something attacking me. Because if I can think of it as something attacking me, coming at me, I have a chance to defend against it. If I'm just thinking, well, I've just changed my mind for the 10,000th time, then I'm probably cooked, you know? And I know some people will give their disease a name. They will make a picture, make that their name. And so that, those two things were really what had to do with me and the blockage between me and really step one. And once I had step one, I really needed another thing, which is I needed a power greater than myself to help me with that problem. Why? Because as it says in step two, I'm insane. Now, I personally like to reverse the order of step two and say, I'm insane and I need help. You know, but then what, right? Well, you know, I, I, I sort of bristled when they started talking to me about being insane when I first came to the program. How, you know, hey, I go to work, I make a good living, I'm really smart in all these other areas. Then I read a de definition of insanity that just nailed it for my disease. It said, this is the definition of, of my disease. Let me see if I can find this. Because it's really important. This definition just hit it on the nose for me. A state of mind that prevents normal perception. Think about what sanity is. What is sanity? For, for most of us, it's going through life and making thousands of decisions all the time, right? You know, you're, you're, you know it's, it's morning today. You're, oh, am I going to go to the relapse workshop? Yes, I better have some lunch first or whatever. And, and you constantly do that. And we all do it really well. We do it really well because we use our perceptions, our sight, our sign, sound, our mental abilities to make these good decisions. But the trouble is we've also got a disease that prevents normal perception in this one area. To put it in computer terms, you've got a great 
computer there on top of your neck, you know, your brain. It's wonderful. It's the best computer that's ever come around on this earth. But our disease is corrupting the data that's coming in to us. If you think about in the big book and under more about alcoholism, there's three stories of insanity. The first one is about Jim. Jim who puts whiskey in the milk after he's sober and decides by putting whiskey in the milk, he can drink safely and, of course, goes off on a binge. Now, we all look at that and we sort of laugh. How crazy is that, right? But you know who also probably thought it was crazy? Jim. Just not until the next day. Think of it. Think of it. How many times have you looked backwards the next morning and said, what the hell was I thinking last night? And that's what the disease is all about. And so, you know, having, having accepted that I'm powerless and I'm insane, I have the problem of getting better. And the program tells me that I need a power greater than myself to recover. Now, here's an important thing, especially for people who are wrestling with this. Steps do not, the steps do not require any formal belief in any kind of form of higher power. What he asks us is to think of ourselves as the lesser power, right? And I really believe that is the key. My own best thinking, it got me where I was when I came in, miserable. And, you know, even when I came back from the relapse, I was miserable. And I also believe greatly in the concept of levels of higher powers, plural. And by that, I mean this really important phrase from the steps, God, myself, and another human being. You know, I need that grounded out version of higher power that this 12 steps talks about. Because when it comes to being, dealing with abstinence, I think I need, I need help. I need human help. Because, you know, again, first things first, when I'm coming out of my relapse, I need a sponsor way more than I needed a higher power. Now, I know that my sponsor was my connection to a higher power now, but I needed that because, again, I'm an addict. I can go up onto a mountaintop and spend a week communing with my higher power, praying and meditating, and come down convinced that God told me that chocolate is a vegetable. <laughs> but then I pick up the phone and I call my sponsor and he's like, yeah, yeah, not today. But you see, that's the problem. I don't know what is the voice of my higher power versus what is the voice of my disease just doing a really good impression of my higher power. And that's why the steps come in, I think. To me, the steps were God's gift to the 20th century. And here's what I tell sponsees. I say, it's the lifeboat. It's the lifeboat I have to get in and row. And that's the key. I have to get in and row. I can't just sit in it and go, well, I'm powerless. You know, that's an important thing to remember. Okay? And I'll show it up here again. You know? We are powerless, but we're not helpless. And again, when it comes to concept of formal religion, let me say, in my 38 years, I have known and know currently Catholic priests, Protestant ministers, rabbis, cantors, Catholic nuns that are all in this program. If a conscious contact alone were all that was needed, they would never have gotten here. But they have to do the same thing I do and you do and everybody does. And that's to get in the rowboat that was given to us and row. You know, I believe that these steps were given, you know, from a higher power. 
This is my personal belief. I'm not throwing it on anybody else. You know, I believe the 12 steps, the big book, and the 12 to 12 in the program were God-given. To me, there's a thread from that rowboat up to some higher power somewhere. But I tell my sponsees, if you don't believe in that higher power, fine. Cut that thread. Just believe in the rowboat. And the reason you can believe is this doesn't even require faith. You can just look around these rooms at hundreds and hundreds of people, hundreds of smart people who tried everything to work on their problem, and it didn't work until they came here. And, you know, I just always say, I always say to sponsees, just remember, you know, out here in L.A., we have, we have atheist AA meetings, we have agnostic AA meetings, we have all kinds of meetings. It is a matter of developing a higher power of your own self, and it, it is could be anything you want it to be. And if you think you're alone in this, you're wrong. And if you don't understand why you're wrong, here's how it is. Go open that big book and read the name of that chapter, We Agnostics. Notice it doesn't say to the agnostics, like it says to the family, to employers. It says we agnostics, meaning, hey, we were right where you are when we came in. And that's the most important thing. And I tell people, if you have trouble with a higher power, just leave it out right now. Don't, your disease is looking for any reason it can can find to head out the door. And what could be better than to think this, this cult is going to pull you in? We're not. You can be here till you're 110 years old and be an atheist. It doesn't matter to us. We just want you to work on the program because this is what we believe works. And just the only other thing I was told, because I came in as a raging atheist, was just keep an open mind. Just keep an open mind to things. And, you know, that little mustard seed got, you know, caught in the door and allowed me to sort of eventually come to a belief. Is it a belief in what I grew up in? Absolutely not. But there, see, that's the other problem I had. I came in with an incredible amount of prejudice. Now, I would... I've always fancied myself, I'm not prejudiced in terms of race, in terms of religion, in terms of sexual orientation, any of those things. But I was hugely prejudiced against religion and people of faith. I would find the worst examples of that as reasons to not believe. And you know all the stories, you see them on the TV, the, the preachers who get caught in the motel room or whatever it is. And yeah, those do exist. But you know what? There's thousands and thousands of people doing good things in this world that are that aren't. And again, I don't have to be part of their religion. I'm just saying I know now how prejudiced I was about it. But before I could come to some kind of a concept of a higher power, I had to tear down the one I was given. You know, I think we're all given a hand-me-down God. You know, that's the thing. It's not our higher power. It's somebody else's. And we need to tear it down and rebuild. Now, we could end up rebuilding it exactly the same way. I could have rebuilt it and been a member of the church I was born into, and it would have been fine, but it would have been my higher power, one that is going to help me. Like it says on page 65 in the big book, that is going to help me with my problem. And that's the important thing, too. I had this crazy idea. Well, I can't pray to God about my food. God's got better things to do. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but I can... I can multitask very well. I'm sitting here talking here, and I'm occasionally putting up a a slide, and I'm doing it pretty well. Can I believe in a higher power that can multitask too? You know, I actually thought, oh, if God helps me with this, my food problem, he's going to have to stop a war, stop from stopping a war somewhere. But it's just nuts. I had nuts ideas. I came in thinking of God as Santa Claus. Okay, God, give me everything on my list, and then I'll believe in you. You know, this is not 
the way it works. I even remember saying, oh, well, if, if there's a God, how come there's this? And how, you know, how come there's a Holocaust? How is there this and list and things like that? I mean, how arrogant. I needed the answers before I would be willing to believe in something, you know? And again, I had, I, I had an old sponsor when I asked that question once. Well, how can there be a God if there's a Holocaust? He said, well, if you knew that, you'd be God. <laughs> and oh, I was so pissed when I heard that. But he was right. And when it comes to a higher power, to me, the most important word in the entire 12 steps is the word only in the 11th step, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Meaning it's my job to adjust to the way things are, not to have things adjusted to the way I want them to be. You know, trying to do it the other way got me eating and drinking and drugging to deal with that frustration. Now, I have been able to come to believe in a higher power now, and it's a partner in my recovery. And that's the important thing. My higher power is a partner in my recovery, not my servant. It's not there to serve up recovery without any effort on my part. If I do my part, though, I truly believe my higher power will meet me more than halfway. So that's the concept in these three first three steps. I have to be willing to roll up my sleeves and surrender. Step one, I am powerless. I have had a lifetime to try and do this myself. As somebody said to me once, if you could have done it yourself, you'd have done it by now. And then two, I'm crazy and I need help in this one area. And three, I have to be willing to ask for help. And then really importantly, this used to be said a lot more than it is now, take direction. What does that mean? It means find a sponsor and be willing to try something new, you know, our own best thinking got us there. We drove the car into the ditch. How about letting somebody help us tow it out? You know, doesn't mean you have to you turn your higher power into God, but try keeping an open mind. Try something new that you don't think is going to work. I always joke, I said, some of the stupidest things that were ever said to me were said to me by a sponsor. And what I mean by that is I'd be told some of my sponsor, I'd hang up the phone, go, that's the stupidest damn thing I ever heard. But you know what? I came from that other program where they taught me bitch and moan, but do it anyway. So I would do it. And by the time I was done, I would go, oh, my God, that's exactly what I needed to do. But thank God I didn't filter it through my broken brain. Because there's a saying, you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. So before we get into some steps, we talked about the first three. I want to just mention some reminders to those uh, who haven't um, haven't been with us uh, uh, from the beginning. Okay, um, the first is um, remember about the LA Intergroup. Maybe think about donating. It helps us do all these things. Make make a website that has all these various podcasts and things. And it's really simple. It's donate O-A-L-A-I-G dot org. And my little mnemonic on that is O-A, Overeaters Anonymous, L-A, Los Angeles, I-G, because we're an intergroup, dot org, because we're an organization. And the other thing is, I'm going to do a, one more writing exercise in a few minutes. And um, so maybe have a pad and pen or pencil or whatever you want. Um, and then also, if you think of any questions. Once I'm done with my talk, I'm going to open it up to as many questions as long as anybody wants to uh, talk. So just to harken back to the beginning, I, I told you I was going to talk about the steps, and I have so far, and the big book I have, but now I want to get into the nuts and bolts. Again, I don't have the answers on your food plan, 
but I can talk about some of the things I have seen over the years that I think work for the most amount of people. And number one is a food plan. I truly believe we all need a food plan. It's in the long version of the tools that some food plan, no matter what, is, is, is an important thing. You guys have probably heard the expression, OA without the steps is a diet. And I believe that. But I got one too. OA without a food plan? It's called Al-Anon. You know, Al-Anon is a wonderful organization that can help you integrate the steps into your life and give you a happier life. But it's going to do nothing for you about the food. You need, And God knows, I joke about how Al-Anon is always waiting room. Lots of people end up here from Al-Anon. But you have to be willing to have a food plan. Why? And it has to be, have a lot of specifics. Why? Because my disease loves ambiguity. That's its way to get its foot in the door. That salesman can get his foot in the door. Because my disease wants me to stay nebulous with what I needed. You know, it's not like people over in AA don't have slips. God knows it happens all the time. But you know what? When they're having a slip, they know it. Do you know how many people I've known who were, who were a month into a slip in OA and they didn't even have a clue because they had such a nebulous food plan? I, we have to have that line. Because one of the things that was always said so much more when I first came in is the concept of the first compulsive bite. You know, there's even a really good piece of literature OA has called before you pick up that first compulsive bite. Because, you know, we do have bites where we have to eat, but that first compulsive bite is the key. Now, what is, what's the thing about a food plan? Again, everybody's different. I have a friend, Lynn E., and she has a master's in nutrition. And she's from up in, in San Francisco, and she's in both of the programs. And she says, you know, here I am. I, I, I have a master's in nutrition. What am I going to do? I'm going to come into a program and be told what to eat by a plumber? <laughs> you know? She said to me, I was writing an article for an outside website once and I was getting her input. She said she believed every compulsive eater, no matter what 12-step program they're in, should go to a professional. And then the key is to be honest with that professional and be willing to be honest and say, hey, I'm a compulsive eater and here's some of the things I have problems with. And be as honest as you can. You know, I have a friend, Adam, here from L.A., who always says his great definition of a red light food is any food that while you're eating it, you're thinking to yourself, when do I get to have this again? <laughs> right? Boy, that hit me. You know, and it's, you know, the thing about this real world thing is I get a lot of calls because I'm like Mr. Relapse in a way. I get calls from sponsors all the time whose sponsees are in who are in relapse saying, okay, you know, again, what steps should I have them working on? What part of the big book should I have them reading and again, I go, wait, wait, distraction, distraction, distraction. The disease is going to want them to kick that can down the road. Like I said, I, I said, tell them, make their full-time job for the next 30 days, getting and staying abstinent, keeping away from that next compulsive bite. You know, I believe my abstinence was a gift. Why was it on the one Monday for God knows how many Mondays in the past I, I, I got abstinent? Because you always start on a Monday. Why that Monday? Another? I don't know. I just sort of feel maybe my higher power said, okay, he's had enough. But it was given to me. I believe, I believe abstinence is given to us. But we give it away. We throw it away. And so make your job the next 30 days, staying away from that next compulsive bite. And if we can't 
get ourselves absent. What we can do is put as many impediments between us and that first compulsive bite. Have ways, have people you can call. God knows nowadays our phones have loads of people in them that we can talk to. And so in turn, in terms of designing a food plan, I, I always like to talk about that our food plan needs to be strong, but it shouldn't be brittle. You know, if you think of something that's brittle, if you drop it, it goes all over the place. And I know I was in another program for a while. It had a very strict food plan. But boy, when people out, it went crazy. And how do you design that? Again, I believe we cannot do this ourselves. If you don't work with a professional, you need to work with an objective other third party, whether it's a sponsor or somebody you trust, because I can't make good decisions about my own food plan. My, I can help my sponsees. My sponsor can help me with mine. But I can't give this, this inmate the keys to the asylum, right? And one of the ways I describe a food plan, as I said, imagine working on a food plan as, as being astride a steeply pitched roof, you know, like one of those Swiss chalets where it's... And if you're standing right on the, there, you can roll off in either direction. One way is, oh, well, I ate that. I won't beat myself up. Oh, I had that again. I won't beat myself up. And boom, you go off that way. But the other way can be just as bad. And that is, I ate an extra pea I shouldn't have. Oh, well, I might as well go have a cake, right? That's thing, perfectionism. There's a wonderful lady out here. Listen to her talk someday, Nanette. Nanette always says that perfectionism is the conjoined twin of compulsive eating. And I agree. And so that brings us back to a lot of us to this red light, yellow light, green light food thing. And in terms of my yellow light foods, I always like to say 90% of my yellow light foods are actually red light foods that I'm still screwing with. You know, in terms of that traffic light analogy, I'm hitting the gas, trying to make it through the intersection. Now, my friend Kim G says an important thing. She says there's really no such thing as a yellow food. It either kicks off the allergy of the body or it doesn't. And she's absolutely right. But for an awful lot of us, it's a lifetime job of figuring out what pile every food goes in. And again, having a sponsor help you. I also get questions all the time about, oh, should I start off with something like three binges a day and let the road get narrower? Well, you know, I've tried it with both ways with sponsees, and I found out if you're ready to get a new food plan, you're probably at your point of greatest surrender. If you're not, and you want this three binges a day, you're probably still negotiating. And I, as a sponsor, am just going to help you with your negotiation. Start tight. You can always go out more later. And that's what I advise sponsees. You know, we used to have an old saying, when in doubt, Leave it out. I, it's a little hokey and it's a little diety and I don't want it to be. But just for today, you know, let's revisit in 30 days. Maybe we can do more. But again, the key is abstinence because, and I love the fact that uh, a number of years ago, the World Service Organization put in an actual part of their definition. Abstinence in OA is, uh, oh, hang on, I missed up something there. Abstinence uh, uh, Susan, uh, we're somehow looking at your screen. There we go. <laughs> okay, don't know what that was about. Okay, the OA abstinence definition, OA's ab definition, abstinence in Overeaters Anonymous is the action of refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a healthy body 
weight. That stuff about weight was added, and I'm, I just genuinely believe it's about us keeping our eyes on the prize, remembering why we're all here. We have to get real about that. I was really good friends until she passed away with Roseanne S., who started this program, and she used to always say, I didn't start OA to be a fat and happy club. I meant it for people to deal with their addiction and get out of it. And as I heard somebody say once, you know, take, take the uh, creativity out of your food and put it in your life where it belongs. And the other line I really love is this. You can do what you want or you can get what you want. And so when you're looking at your food plan, you need to be honest. You need to look at things. You need to be real. If you, you know, if I want to be 150 pounds, I have to eat what a person who weighs 150 pounds does. In the past, that diet mentality say, okay, I'll eat what that 150 pound person is. But then when we're done, hey, I'm off to the races. It just doesn't work that way. And the other thing has to do with scales. And this is another touchy subject in this program. I happen to believe in both scales, a food scale and a, and a weight scale. I call them my denial busters. And the reason I say that is I come from a, uh, I had come from the other program where you weighed once a month until you got down to within 10 pounds of your goal weight and then you weighed every week. And that's what I do Saturday, by the way, right? In the morning, I believe scales are my denial busters in both the food scale and the weight scale. And I'll tell you my things thinking on it. I have the eyes of an addict and a brain of an addict that will look at a steak. If I go to Morton's and Morton Steakhouse and they bring out a steak that's this big and I'll go, oh yeah, that's about five ounces, <laughs> you know, which is what I eat. And of course it isn't. But if I can weigh and have an idea. Now, I haven't done that much now because I spent a number of years in another program and I can eyeball five ounces now. But I will do something if I apportion, uh, I apportion things out and freeze them. I will do that kind of thing. I'll buy a lot of stuff because I find it easier to freeze a lot of stuff and make my, my food as easy as it can be. So I believe in that. I just as a way to sort of keep myself honest. And then let me talk about the weight scale, because I know this, some people have different thinking on this. Um, the thinking I have is um, that uh, I'm just thinking I had, I was going to do an exercise and use the chat, but we're not going to be able to do that now. I believe my weight scale is my denial buster. I can tell myself I'm doing great. I'm doing wonderful. Nothing's wrong. I get on the scale. I'm up 10 pounds. Well, now I have an important decision to make. Do I now tell myself that gravity is no longer a constant <laughs> or do I admit, hey, I better look at what my behaviors are as a way to keep track? Now, I know some people say, oh, I can't weigh. I'll get on the thing 15 times a day. No, I can't. And I, I, I always say, to them, well, wait a minute. You were eating 15 times a day, too. You have an abstinence. Can't you have a scale abstinence? Now, if that means you've got to take that scale and put it in the back of the closet until you need it once a week, fine. But I'm a real believer in we have to stay grounded with our recovery, you know. And so that's an important thing to remember. And again, I'll just talk for a little about the actual concept of an urges and stuff like that. Because it's, this is, again, now we're in reality. Been talking about the steps, talked about the big book. At the end of the day, higher power is going to be a big part of this. But again, we have to put those impediments between us and the first compulsive bite. So I want to talk about some things that may help some people. Again, going back to the first compulsive bite, know where that is, okay? Because you have to know where that line is. 
remember, a relapse actually starts long before you pick up the food. The way I was taught it is that we get better physically first, then emotionally, and then spiritually, but it works in the reverse on a relapse. We get start to lose it spiritually, which, of course, the thread between spiritual and physical is the emotional and mental, and the last is the physical. So always try, as best as you can, work on that fit spiritual condition. And, you know, it's an important thing to remember. And when it comes to a food plan, I mean, an important thing, here's one one other thing I I didn't mention because I got uh, out of the way about that, is um, I need to think about my food and what I want it to be. To me, the goal of most 12-step people, especially when it comes to food, is, is in more about alcoholism, where it talks about in the 10-step promises, we will recoil as if from a hot flame. But the one that to me was the key, this was the goal. I want to be put in a position of neutrality around the food. Well, the answer on that is so blazingly simple. I don't know why it took me as long as it did to see it, okay? Here's the secret. To be put in a position of neutrality around the food, all I have to do, just one thing, is to get rid of any of the foods with which I cannot be neutral. That's the key. You know, again, I have to look and be as honest with I, as I can about what foods I can eat, what I can't. And some of those are tough because we don't know, is my disease taking over? Is my salesman taking over my decision-making? And we can never know. I'm looking right now at... Um, a bunch of people because I can, I'm looking at the other thing. That's the reason I'm turning away from the camera and I can see a lot of people. And I just wanted to get an idea. Everybody raise their hand. If they're willing to go to any lengths right now to stay abstinent, are you willing to go to any lengths? How many people raising their hand are willing to make a commitment to doing what it takes, right? Okay. Here's the last one. How many people are willing to take that yellow light list I had you write at the beginning and put them on your red light list today, okay? Start with that. Talk to your sponsor. Maybe you bring them back, but that's the key. Now, I got to tell you, a lot of times, I remember I was in Texas doing this, and I brought up that, you know, and everybody raised their hand on the first two, and as soon as they did the thing about the yellow list, yellow light list, everybody went, (laughs) So... That's the thing, you know, willing to go to the lengths is great in theory, but all of a sudden this is where the rubber hits the road. So I want to talk for a minute about the things our disease says to us. And this is where the second little writing exercise goes in. And because I can't use the chat, I think what I'll try and do is, um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to ask everybody to unraise their hand right now. I know we have a lot of people who are going to have questions but if everybody, I think, I don't know if I can do that or not. Or, I don't know if Jeff's on. He can help me un, unraise hands because there's a reason I'm, I want to do that. I'll explain. Do that to me. Here's the, next, here's the next writing exercise. You got a pad. I want you to take just like two, three minutes and write down every line your disease tells you. You know, think of those things your disease whispers to you when it's getting you to go binge. You know, things like, oh, I'll start tomorrow. Oh, she baked that for me. I can't say no. Oh, you know, all of those things. Just write about those. Get at least a page worth of those written out. 
as many of those things as you can say, okay? And when we get done, maybe we'll do a little sharing on that, and then I'll, we'll move on to the last part of this. So I'm going to take uh, like three, three minutes or so, maybe just a hair more, and if everybody could do that, um, and then I'll come back and we'll take it, we'll take it from there. So what I'll ask people to do is uh, I'm going to see who's got hands raised, and we'll sort of go through them one at a time. Anybody who's got a hand raised, and we will, um, I'll ask you to just read, let's say, five, and we'll just go through, like, the first 10 or 20. I have Karen USA. Uh, I'll ask you to unmute. Hello, I'm, I'm a compulsive eater. My name is Karen, and my credits don't transfer. <laughs> They're not worth, I get my, the, those examples you gave were too surface for me. You're not worthy. You're not included in this group. No one will like you. You'll never get better. No one will buy your artwork. You are a failure. Thanks, Karen. Oh, tell us where you're from. Syracuse, New York. What the heck? Hey. I used to play <laughs> Wise Guys as a comedian. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. Anyway, thanks. Thanks. Okay, next I have Margaret's iPhone. It's... Yep, uh, raising Hi. a hand with the um, Zoom Hi. raise hand. Okay. Hi, hi, I'm Margaret, Perilous Over Food. So I have, you're already so old, you deserve to be able to eat. Uh, what's a little bit more? It's sugar-free, so it's okay. Um, uh, don't waste food. You already paid for it. Um, nobody can really tell me what to do. You're still hungry. And... Okay. Traveling, this is new and exciting. <laughs> well, thank you, Margaret. Um, so, uh, by the way, I want to mention... Can I be heard? Can I be heard? Yeah. Uh, so, yes, someone asked if we could take down that chat. Is there no way to do that? I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying Wait, to... Can we please clear it? It's really, really just awful and... Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. it is. Yeah. I don't know. I'd like think. to offer something. If you just scroll the chat backwards, you don't have to look at that anymore. Sure. But, but I know, but what? It's, it anyway, it's repulsive and it should okay, be gone. Guys, guys, guys. Um, you guys are giving it too much power. Focus on the workshop, please. Right. Yes, it is. It is horrible. And I, if I knew how to turn it off, I, I'm, um, I'm a moderate. <laughs> but I'm not an expert, so I don't. We should clear the chat. Is what we should do. It's it's that way we right. can. Does focus. anybody know how to clear the chat? Okay, but if, in you, the click meantime, on, if you click on chat bottom at bottom of your thing, it will right. take the chat away, so you don't see it on your screen. Exactly. So just at the bottom of the screen where it says chat, just click chat. It'll go away. Except it's still there. I get it. Okay. Thank you. Okay. okay. Move to your participants yet. Okay. Unlock Sorry, the but, chat. Okay. Unlock the chat. Unlock the chat. Type in a bunch of messages and we'll scroll away. Okay. But I think we're going to just everybody just get rid of it. And I'm sorry it happened. I wish I could make it not. Um, okay. So the, I, going back to what I was talking about, um, before I do the next person, let me just say, listen to every one of these and they may be ones you want to add to your list that you didn't think of. Okay. So I, I and again, when I unmute you, just give me your name and where you're from. Uh, Zena. 
Hi, this is Zaina, Compulsive Eater from Egypt. Um, my, the top of the list is Eat Now, Repent Later. I'll start Saturdays, it's the beginning of the week here. You'll always be fat. Uh, you can only lose weight when you restrict. It's healthy, I can eat as many as I want. It's salad, I can have a large bowl or a bowl as large as my head. And uh, my body's metabolism is slow. Thanks, Dana. All right, I have Ellen B. Is that Ellen B. from Portland? Um, I actually live in California now. Hi, John. Oh, well, welcome back. <laughs> I know her. Yes. Um, so mine are, well, I don't eat, really eat that much. I'm hungry. And, you know, one of the program things is I shouldn't get too hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Um, I don't want to restrict. Um, I controlled this last, whatever it is, last time so I can do it again. Um, well, I'm le eating less than my husband is, so it's not that bad. Those are some. Okay. Thanks, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca from New Jersey. Rebecca. How about... Oh, hang on. Go ahead, my, Rebecca. My sponsor is crazy. This doesn't apply to me. I'm special. This is ridiculous, and I'm so much better than this. Great. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, I have Bridget L. Bridget L. Bridget L. There. All right, let's move on. Greg L. from Arizona. I know him. Bridget's too. here. Can you oh, hear okay. me? Yes, sorry, sorry. Bridget. <laughs> um. My first ones were, you know, the first thing I always think of is just, I need it. Um, the true addict. I'm still hungry. I'm just going to eat this one thing once. If I only do it once, it won't affect my body, abstinence, weight loss, integrity. That's mine. Thank you. Thanks. Somebody just cleared all the raised hands. <laughs> uh, John, this is, this but, is Greg. I, yeah, I know, Greg. I know you were one, one of the last ones. Okay. Okay. And this is a big one for me. I've been at a healthy body weight for many years. So oh, yeah. fill in the blank. You know, <laughs> so I whatever it is I want to eat, no problem whatsoever. Obviously if it's not chocolate cake and I've been at a healthy weight for, for years, it's just fruit. We're just eating out. Uh I don't have my scale. I've been at a healthy weight. Okay, thanks. Uh, I have Martin in England. I don't know if that's your last name or where you're from. Martin? I'm living, I'm in England. Yeah, I'm near London. I'm Sid in St. Albans. Thank you very much, John. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I went to your other uh, one of the... <laughs> the um, Rick, yeah, good. That large meeting. Um, yeah, it's disgusting, actually, what these characters are doing. And you, must, you also report them. But anyway, um, what it... My... Um, my sugar addiction says to me sometimes is that I've lost a lot of weight and it suggests that I might like some fat back that I could take that I could take some of the um the calories that I've lost in uh, I could take them in in my in my chocolate and eat it and that's crazy you know it's really crazy crazy of it but yeah I thought that was quite an unusual one that I have really that you know <laughs> Because <laughs> I've lost a hundred pounds before, and I've um, 
yeah, and I've thought to myself, well, I could have some of that, you know, I could have a small cash back on that in chocolate, but it doesn't work because it all comes back then. So, yeah, don't even, don't pick up whatever, whatever. Don't never pick up, do not pick up whatever happens. Uh, All right, Martin, thank you very much. We'll take like three more and then I'm going to move on. Uh, Mark S., is that Mark S. from uh, L.A.? Yes, it is. Uh, Hey, Mark. I'm Mark, compulsive boy reader, 100 pounder from Los Angeles. Um, So here are mine. Uh, One bite won't hurt. Uh, You know you want it or you can handle it. Another one is you can work it off later. Uh, why limit yourself? And then the ever popular, why you waste food? Uh, you know, which is always <laughs> yeah. the, gra- the grandmother's clean plate, you know. So that, those are mine. Okay, great. All right, uh, a couple more. Uh, Lynn uh, from Montreal. Bienvenue. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, guys. Thank you for having this today. Well, as a grazer, my favorite one to go to is, oh, it's just a little bit, just a little bit. I'm just going to take a little bit. And that's why it's not that bad. And um, I'm just going to have a little bit so I can clear my head. And after I'm off for another, I go on. And um, uh, I go now, I go more and more to Anyways, it's not even working. So what the hell? Oh yeah, those are my five. Uh, okay, yeah. well, thank you, Lynn. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right, so I think we're going to go back, and maybe if somebody has had to clear the raised hands, uh, so that we can uh, uh, go back. I'll talk some more about what it is. I um, why this whole thing came up. I just want to look at my other thing for a second here. Sorry, is it possible um, just to clear that chat, please? It's really awful. Sorry, it's You're, Maria. We don't S. see from... how. Just don't look. John. Yes. If you hover over the chat and you go to more, it'll give you an option to delete. If you hover actually over, where the co-host can hover over it, it'll give you an option to delete. Then, if you, if you look over more, I just googled it here. Please delete it and report them. Please report them. They actually expose themselves. They have a Twitter handle of Zoom Rates for right, guys, Let's not let this itself. take more, more power. Give it more power. And I take mean, the I'm really back, Sorry. John. John, take the Sorry, meeting back. Excuse me. Sorry, excuse me. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello? Yes. Hello? Yeah, there are people waiting to come in at half past nine. Did you open it? Oh, okay. Did anybody get that? Yeah, I did. I opened it and I let in everybody in the waiting room and then I closed it again. Okay, good. So thank you. Please, for my people, answer. focus on the meeting. This is important for me. Forget about the stupid chat. Thank you. I agree. Just okay. don't look, folks. <laughs> hey, Barbara. Okay, so guys, back to this. I want to talk about what you what you wrote and, and some thoughts about it. First of all, I'll mention that I made up – if I was doing this at a regular workshop, I would ask somebody to be like the secretary who would take down all these things and compile them into a list and send it off to everybody. But because of this situation, it's just a little too hard to do. So what I um, – I have have, uh, uh, done is I took one of the ones that uh, was done from a group in uh, Boston area, Metro West Intergroup, 
uh, I was at a uh, thing of theirs out on the Cape and somebody printed it up and I made a PDF copy of it. And hopefully everybody has a pen. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a link for you if you want it. It is our website, oalaig.org front slash lies, L-I-E-S dot P-D-F. And this is the lies our disease tells us. And it is a long version of the things we've heard here and maybe some of them that you hadn't heard, but to get them all together. Now here's, for me, what this is all about. Take that list, take what you've written, look through them, maybe merge them. Now, on that list, look at any of those things that might you might say to yourself in a situation that doesn't involve breaking your abstinence. Just maybe there are a couple. Maybe some of the ones that people put down don't fit you. Cross them out. Then when you have that combined list of the things that your disease says, essentially that's the face of your disease. It is the interface between the disease of addiction in your brain and what it is saying to you at that last possible level. And you can do with it what you want. Maybe put it on your refrigerator. Maybe just have a copy with you. But as I was saying before, it is about knowing where you stop and the disease starts. And that was an important thing for me. So, um, yeah, so that was uh, the thing I wanted to talk about there. So that's what this whole exercise was all about. And again, remember to have the things between you and that first compulsive bite you need. Phone numbers you can call, people you can rely on, and be willing to do it. Now, let me tell you, when I was in relapse, my disease would say, no, don't call them. You'll bother them, this or that. Well, the great thing about going on Zoom meetings now is if you're on the East Coast, you can get some numbers of people on the West Coast. And it's 11 o'clock for you, but it's only 8 o'clock for us. Or, you know, maybe in the other direction. You know, it's, it's the middle of the night in L.A. Maybe you can find a friend from London and make, make calls and be willing to do that. And the thing is, I didn't do it forever, forever, forever. And then I, and the reason I didn't do it was part of what was going on in my brain is this isn't going to work. It's only, all I'm doing is delaying the inevitable. This urge will not go away if I don't feed the monster. And the reality was it wasn't true. And when I finally tried something else and I did call and I did talk about how I wanted to just eat everything, eventually it went away. Like I said, I'm a drug and alcohol counselor, and there is more, and there are more and more studies that show that one of the best answers of dealing with cravings in the moment is something called mindfulness. Now, people throw that around all the time, that phrase, and it can mean a lot of things. But I'm convinced that a lot of the times when I went and binged, I felt like I was impelled, like a zombie. But you know what? That wasn't the case. I had many numbers of times. I could have headed off taking that first bite, but I didn't. You know, the thing is, I never slipped. I relapsed. You know, I think the word slip almost absolves us. You know, it's like we're walking down the street. Whoop, I slipped. There's a piece of cheesecake in my mouth, right? No, I thought about it. I planned it. I usually went out to the store because I didn't keep my binge foods in the house. The only slipping I might have done was, you know, if I slipped on the way into the uh, 7-Eleven or some store. Uh, 
so the the other part that is the key to mindfulness with this disease is that dreaded tool of writing because this is about the commitment to delay your binge if you can trick that salesman by saying okay it's a delay it's not necessarily a change of mind then you might have a chance so why do you write well because mindfulness talks about not only going talks about not going with that knee-jerk reaction to get into the food or get in the car to go get it instead it says sit down start writing about exactly what you're feeling. Try and get a handle on it. And I mean feeling in all areas. First, start writing about the physical sensations. What's going on? Is it like a generalized anxiety? You know, maybe it's a blood sugar drop, which is essentially a mild detox from sugar. You know, I that always, for me, was part of generalized anxiety. You know, I, I look back at it now that I had conflated real hunger with a blood sugar drop. And they are really, really different. Real hunger is pretty identifiable to me. It's really in my stomach. It, it has a gnawing thing. But when I'm coming off a of sugar, blood sugar, I just sort of get generally antsy and, and, and oh, I got to eat. But I had conflated those two together for so long because they both had the same answer to that, which is go eat. But if I can write about what's going on, am I really hungry? When the heck was the last time I ate? You know, it, it sort of works. And then think for a moment about your thoughts and emotions. Start trying to think backwards. See if you can find something that might have been upsetting or triggering to you and write about that. Maybe it was something subtle. Maybe it was something that didn't even, you didn't even think about at the time. You didn't even think it was upsetting. Maybe go back because maybe it was an emotional depth charge that just took a little while to go off. And observe these internal experiences, the thoughts, the emotions, the physical sensations that comprise the urge. Visualize the urge almost as a wave, you know? And when it does, tune in on your breathing a little. They teach us to tune in on the breathing. Focus on making your breathing slower and deeper. Breathe in fully through the abdomen and exhale totally emptying your lungs on, uh, you know, on inhale through your abdomen, exhale until you empty your lungs. If you use this form of intentional breathing like a surfboard, be present as the waves of, of urge rise and then peaks and then subsides, eventually, uh, essentially riding out that wave. But this still requires a commitment to doing this before you pick up the first compulsive bite. Your disease will whisper, oh, this is stupid. This isn't going to work here. You know, what the hell are you listening to that John guy for? What the hell does he know? You're just, you know, and again, the one that always got me, you're just delaying the inevitable. But you know what? It isn't inevitable. It isn't inevitable because the reality is left to their own devices. Urges and cravings usually last no longer than 15 or 20 minutes, at which point they pass. Now, what doesn't pass is giving in to that. And again, this was something I didn't do forever and ever and then when I did it, it worked. It was weird. I was like, I was like one of those rats in a maze. You know, they have rats and they, the whole idea is for them to get out the other side. Well, I was a rat that went down the wrong path. And when I got to the end and banged my head against the end, I backed out and then went down the same one again. The only way this can change is if I try another way and see that it actually does work. And another thing I want to talk about about food plans 
is, you know, there's a line in more about alcoholism, and it actually it's the, it's the very first line, I believe. Nobody likes to think they are bodily and mentally different from their fellows. Well, guys, I'm sorry, compulsive eaters are. We are bodily and mentally different from the people we call normies. It's just the reality. And it's okay. Most of us have come to some acceptance about that. But here's the important thing to hear. Most of us are bodily and mentally different from each other, from other people in OA. Some people can eat what I can't. I can eat something that they don't. We all have to look at our own selves. We have to look at the different levels of this disease. If you can come in and eat everything you find in normal portions, well, God bless you. Your disease didn't get down to the level that mine did. Mine is a level that requires certain abstinence from certain foods altogether. You know, there's a wonderful lady here in L.A. named Roberta who is one of those people who can eat all foods moderately. And I only mention her because uh, I was at my home meeting Serenity Sunday one week, and this girl got up to take a chip for like 30 days of abstinence. And she said, you know, I had four years of abstinence, but then I tried to be Roberta. You know, now it's not Roberta's fault, but it's about we have to be able to be willing to look at what is our our problems, you know. I went to another food program. I'm not going to mention the name of it, but it was one that had a sort of a strict food plan. And they used to get up and had this mantra about, you know, we don't eat between meals anything except sugar-free soda, no calorie beverages, and sugar-free gum, blah, 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 right? And the thing is, people were going in and out and in and out all the time, myself included, to a certain extent. I came back to OA after I did get some time of abstinence, and I was at a meeting up in the uh, San Fernando Valley, and I heard a guy that anybody L.A. people know named Ray. Ray has been around. I joke Ray's been around since there were two steps, but uh, Ray's got over 40 years. And Ray would get up at a meeting, and Ray would say, my abstinence today is I eat whatever I want, whenever I want, as much as I want, if I'm willing to pay the price. And today I am not willing to pay the price. So I eat three weighed and measured meals, sugar-free soda, no calorie beverages, and sugar-free gum. Essentially, he says the exact thing that they said in my other program. But the difference is Ray is working his program. I, unfortunately, made that their program. They're telling me what to do. They're the authority figure, and I, I would rebel against it. And I have to realize I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want. My disease wants to convince me that abstinence is deprivation, but it isn't. My disease wants to hold up a balance sheet, you know? You know, anyways, I'm in accounting, assets, debits, you know, assets, liabilities, credits, debits, whatever you want to say, and white out one side and look up and go, oh, look, you poor thing, you don't get to have this, and you don't get to have that. Oh, they've made dark chocolate Reese's peanut butter since you've been absent. Oh, they have this, you don't get to eat them. But it whites out the other side. You know, it never holds up this side and say, oh, you poor thing. You don't get winded going up three steps. Oh, you poor thing. You don't wear out your pants because you rub in the middle. You poor thing. You don't sit alone every Saturday night wishing you were somebody you could be with. That's what your disease doesn't show you. That's what the real balance sheet is. And I tell sponsees, you have to lose the phrase, I can't. This is America, well, for those of us who are here. This is America, I, land of the free, land of the Costco, the things this big of everything. I can eat until whatever. I choose not to. And again, this comes down to what can you do? How can you do it? Do you need help? So this brings up something else 
that I want to see if I can share. Um, let me just see if I can get it up. I don't know. Can I still share? I don't remember. If I can, I will. And if I can't, I, I, I will just, I will point you to the, to the website where it is. Um, let's see. Let's see if I can share. Uh, yes, it looks like I can. So this has to do with what I think of as the, oh no, I guess I can't. <laughs> I thought I could share. It says, are you guys seeing that? Somebody unmute for a quick second and say, yes, I'm seeing a chart. Yes, no? we're seeing a chart. Okay, great. Um, what this is about is it's, it, it's about coming to the conclusion of what you can do. What is, you know, what are your levels? What are your levels of, of uh, you know, willingness? All of a sudden, I can't, <laughs> hang on. I, there's what I want. In other words, it's about concentric circles. You know, the outer one, of course, being all foods moderately. Can you eat all foods moderately? You know, there's that great line in the big book says, well, you know, try some controlled drinking. If you can do it, our hats are off to you. Great. Then you're done. But if you're like me, you're going to try that for a while and go, oh, no, that ain't working. <laughs> so then you move to the red light, yellow light, green light list, and you decide, okay, these are these red light ones. I've got to stay away from. Here's the green ones. Can have as much as I want or whatever I want of it. And the yellow light ones, i got to be really careful of. Then the next level down, and these can be inner, inner, inner done between the, the calling and the weighing. Call and text your food into your sponsor. And bookend if it changes. In other words, I call in and say, okay, I'm going to have steak and this and that. And then I end up going out to dinner and I get chicken. So I let my sponsor know the next day I had this. And it's, you know, that's the way I do it. The next level down is I call and text my food into a sponsor with no changes unless it's okay. Maybe calling in and bookending changes didn't work because you bookended and called your sponsor the next day and said, yeah, you know how I said I was going to have an apple? Well, I had a huge piece of cheesecake. <laughs> and your sponsor will say, well, geez, you told me you weren't going to eat cheesecake anymore. There's an example. So maybe you do have to go down to calling and texting food into a sponsor with no changes, you know, weighing and measuring. Maybe you need to weigh and measure at home maybe, but not out. So you can try that and see if, you know, but maybe you go out and you come back from a meal and go, wow, you know, I really did eat more than I wanted to. Because, you know, one of the, one of the sad uh, things about, at least in, in America, is no restaurant ever went broke serving too much food. You know, in my opinion, you know, going out to restaurants is licensed to binge sometimes. So I have to be careful. And so maybe that doesn't work. So you need to go to the next level, which is weighing and measuring everywhere. You know, you have to be careful. I know some people, I know a couple on this meeting right now, you've heard already, who do that. They are part of a group called a sober eating group. By the way, I'll just quick do a commercial up on the LA website for that last birthday party. You'll find one, if not more than one, sober eating workshop thing you might want to listen to that might help you. It runs along these lines. And so... That is, then you get to the last level here of you take all those yellow light foods and you move them to your red light list. And then you talk to your sponsor and bring them back one at a time. Now, I've done this with sponsees, and I've said, okay, we're going to take everything on this yellow light list you have, and we're going to bring them back one at a time. So 
take that yellow light list and rate them, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six in the order you want to bring them back and, and send it to me. And when they send it to me, I would say, okay, guess what? You get from the bottom up because the one that you want back first may be the one that's the problem. And then we try it for 30 days. My old sponsor, Carl, used to say, you can bring something back, but you once you do this, you lock in your food plan for 30 days. We'll look at it later. Um, and then the, the only other one that's, that's below that that I didn't put on here is that all of this doesn't work. You may need inpatient treatment. You know, It has happened that some of us have problems that we cannot do within OA ourselves. And while we're on this subject, I want to make a real pitch for therapy. Um, I'm a huge believer in outside help. So was Bill Wilson. And if you've been slipping for a long time and you sh you're trying your hardest and you can't get it back, this may be part of your problem. You know, this could be there's something underneath and you can have the best sponsor in the world, but they're not professionally you know, trained to help pull out whatever it is that's driving this engine of relapse, as I like to call it, you know? And I think for, for some people, it's, uh, I call it an iceberg. You know, iceberg only has the tip above the surface, which is your eating. Everything else is below. And it may be old stuff. It may be old hurt. It could be stuff you don't even remember. But you got to find out what you're eating over if you're trying everything and it isn't working. And I always tell the story on this, and we're going to end in just a second. Um, <clears throat> when I kept relapsing, I kept relapsing, relapsing. I went to that other program, and I even relapsed there for quite a while. I'd keep starting on a Monday, and I'd never make it. But I really made that commitment, and I knew I really wanted to do this. And so one of the things that happened when I, I just said, I'm going into this full force, I went and got a therapist as well. I said, I don't know what's going on here but I want to find out. And I got a funny feeling it's going to come up. And of course it did. I was looking forever. What is it? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Once I got abstinent and clean for a while, it was this close to my nose. There's a great line they talk about in the program. They said, if you want to find out what you're eating about, stop eating. And that's what happened with me. Okay. And what it was for me is I was in a marriage. I didn't want to be in. And having to deal with that for me was more than I could deal with because I am the child of alcoholics. I am the people pleaser. I'm the one who wants everybody happy. That's, I think, why I became a comedian. And now I'm going to have to go tell somebody who loved me that I really don't, I'm not happy in this marriage. And I think I would rather put sharp sticks in my eyes than have to do that. And so what I did was I wheeled this huge distraction between me and the real problem, which was that. You know, that line, people say, food isn't the problem. Food is the solution. And it was for me. And that's what you have to do. You have to get to that. And once I did that, it helped. And I know there's other people who have things way worse than that. They may have childhood abuse. They haven't dealt with childhood sexual abuse, physical abuse, stuff they may not even be aware of. But I always tell people there's nothing, nothing in your brain that can hurt you. There's nothing in your past. It may be uncomfortable as all hell to deal with, but it can't hurt you anymore. What can hurt you is not dealing with it because we turn back to the food, we turn to drugs, we turn to alcohol, we turn to something, you know, and that's part of it. And part of this whole thing, I didn't spend any time talking about the steps today because this was about setting the leg, but what you have to do is keep working. 
again, the wonderful progression of these steps where you admit your powers, you start to realize, oh man, I, I need help with this because my brain doesn't work right when it comes to this substance. I need some help. I need to turn it over. I need to turn on the sponsor, ask for help from a higher power if I believe in that. Now I got to start cleaning out this garbage. I got all this garbage from my past. I clean it out. Now I always say step four and step five are discrete steps. There's two steps. It's not four or five. Step four is for me to look at. And I always tell sponsees, you can't work on a four step with any eye on who you're going to give it to. You can give it to anybody. I, as a sponsor, would never take it personally if you chose to do otherwise. I have given one to a therapist. People have given them their clergyman. But it's about being willing to get it out. And if you have an eye on who you're going to give it to, you're going to censor yourself. you got to get the garbage out. you got to clean that wound out. This lady, Leah M., always says our disease gets back in through our wounds. And the idea of getting this out and then giving it away and then looking as a result. I love the progression. Then you're looking at six and seven. You're looking at your character defects that you've, you've, you've identified. And again, I don't like the phrase character defects. I like defense mechanisms or character liabilities. Defects seems to say we're defective, but we're not. We have a disease. And that's a liability. It helped us. It was a defense mechanism that did something for us. We're not crazy. It did something for us at one point, but now it stopped working. And we need to realize it's working against us. And then eight and nine are really being willing to pull that list out. Again, eight and nine have to be done separately. And then go be willing to make amends. And maybe you break those up into three parts. The ones, okay, I'll make amends now. No, I'm not ready to make amends yet. And the third one is the no way in hell list. But guess what? As you start making amends and you get the positive reactions you're going to get, because people want to be magnanimous, those, that list will get smaller and you'll start popping the not yet up to the one now. And then the no way in hell may move up. Eventually, you and again, the ninth step is a lifetime commitment. You can't say, well, I'm not going to get the 10, 11, and 12 until I finish nine. I may have the rest of my life to do that. And some of these I may have to go make it at grave sites. You know, when I have, and, you know, just say it out loud at a gravesite. We have no idea. Maybe, maybe it's being heard. And then 10, 11, and 12, the idea of, you know, again, these steps are about making a pivot point in your life. That was the old you. This is the new me. Everything from here forward changes. That's the reason they use the word amends and not apologies. Amend means to change. I can go say the, all these you know, shitty things I did, but if I'm still doing shitty things, I really haven't made amends. I've just made apologies. I've tried to absolve myself. I have to make changes. But then how you feel about yourself when you're done, when you're living in 10, 11, and 12, that's how self-esteem comes about. I used to try and go binge and then come up and say, well, I'm still a good person. Well, if I believed that, I wouldn't have binged. You know, like they say, you know, to get self-esteem, you have to do esteemable acts. And through that and liking myself, it, it gets there. You know, it gets there. And the thing is, I had to realize, a great guy, Harlan, most of you guys probably know him. He always says, no matter how much we work the program, memorize those, you know, first 164 pages. We don't rise above the level of human being. And we're going to constantly keep making mistakes. And it's okay. We try hard. And we try in the next day to be better. Because if we're good people, a good person doesn't want to harm themselves, doesn't want to do deliberately self-destructive things like compulsively overeating. And we'll get better. And the last thing I'll, I want to talk about, I'll just say, is about self-forgiveness and about self, 
esteem. There's a great lady out there named, uh, oh God, who was it? Was it Christine Neff? I think it is. Does a thing about self-forgiveness. And it's about the idea. The key to self-forgiveness is grading yourself on the human curve. You know, we tend to want to grade ourselves against perfection. None of us are perfect. Grade against the human curve and you'll start liking yourself better. And my favorite line, and I'm going to end with this and then we'll open for questions. It's on page 417 of the big book. And whenever I say 417, everybody goes, oh, yeah, yeah, the acceptance paragraph. No, it's the one right after it. And it has a thing about, you know, I'm, you know, I was the chief critic. But the most important line it has is when I'm criticizing me or you, I'm criticizing God's handiwork. I'm saying I know better than God. And for the longest time, I read that and said, yeah, that's about my judgmental issue. When I'm criticizing you, I'm saying I'm criticizing, you know, God's work. But that's not what it says. It says when I'm criticizing me or you, I'm criticizing God's handiwork. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be today. Do I like where I am today? No, I want to be better. I don't want to keep making mistakes and having arguments and all that. But I'm human. And I take the foot off my own, the back of my own neck and say, you're a human. John, you screwed up. And and you don't have to beat yourself up. You just have to try and learn from whatever happened today. Be a better person. And so I'm going to stop now and we'll, we'll try and take uh, some questions. And I hope everybody enjoyed it.